Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be teaching out of the book of Revelation. Let's do this. Revelation. As I mentioned, a couple of weeks since we've been there, the, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, um, or that whole week, rather, we had that time of Thanksgiving and praise, and then we were off last week, and so here we are, we're back again, but we'll do a little bit of review just to get us caught up on where we're at. We're here in Revelation chapter 2, we'll pick up tonight in verse 8, but remember, okay, as we're looking at the book of Revelation here, and it's going to take us some time to make our way through this um, and that's okay, especially as we consider the letters to the churches here. There is much to unpack with each specific church. And so um, we're going to take the time that we need to, to make our way through these here. But remember, chapters 1 through 3 have really a historic element. In chapter 1, John was to write the things that he saw. And so it's certainly of benefit to us as we see a description there of the, the risen Lord Jesus, the glorified risen Lord, as, as, as John writes what he has seen. But that happened in the past. And then... Um, as we come into chapters 2 and 3, John is writing of the things which are. So the things which he had seen and the things which are. So remember that he is recording uh, the words of Jesus as he, Jesus, dictates to John seven different letters to actual churches that existed during this particular time. So these are real churches, real people, real problems. They, they existed. These letters had a purpose to a particular people at a particular time. But of course, there's application for us as well, and we'll seek to make that uh, here today. Now, there were plenty of churches to choose from. Right? These were not the, the only churches, but yet God chose seven churches. And these seven were not only geographically located along a distinct major travel route, making distribution of these letters easier and more effective, but the issues within the churches also parallel nicely specific issues that we've seen throughout church history. Some people debate this. Some people say that, no, you don't see uh, a historical record of church history amongst these seven churches, but it's kind of hard to deny. Now, you could certainly take the stance and say, well, this isn't what God intended by it, but a sovereign God who's over all things has a way in which he can work to accomplish such things. And certainly as we look at these seven churches, we see church history evident amongst them. From the very first church we consider in Ephesus, which really serves to give us a picture of the apostolic church age. That's really the, the church up through A.D. 100. The church will consider tonight Smyrna, which really gives us a picture of the persecuted church which comes after the apostolic age. It's really the, the, the range of AD 100 to around the year 316. The reason it's the year 316 is that's when Christianity became to be more widely accepted as an official religion, and so persecution uh, effectively uh, ceased around that time. Let me rephrase that. It's never ceased. Persecution of the church has never ceased, but uh, it was greatly diminished during that era. 
And so then we'll see in the third church, Pergamos, which really serves to give us a picture of the church throughout the world from the years 316 to 800, which then leads into the medieval church, Thyatira, uh, the year 800 to 1517. And then Sardis, which really gives us the rise of the uh, state church, um, the official church, uh, A.D. 1517 to 1750. And then to Philadelphia, uh, the missionary church from around 1750 to the 1900s, which then gives way to the Laodicean church or the apostate church, which really is our present church age from the year 1900 and onward. And so that's a very quick overview. Of course, we'll consider that much more in depth over the next several weeks as we make our way through these letters. The challenge with this, of course, is that it would be difficult to really paint each era with one broad sweeping stroke as I have essentially done there. Yes, we can look at each of these ages and say this is kind of the general category and the general years, but we know there's overlap, right? Um, we must be aware of that. Um, and really, even today, there are elements of these different ages that exist. Uh, for example, uh, w- if we live here in this time uh, of post-1900 and the apostate church, if that would kind of mark the church age that we're living in, I certainly wouldn't tonight suggest that we gathered here are an apostate church. Um, there's always a remnant, right? And so it, it, it's a generality uh, as we kind of look at that overview. But it can easily be seen how various times of church history fit well within uh, that particular chronology. But here's the bigger picture, and this is the more important thing for us, and I want to make sure we keep this in view, because as we consider Revelation, it's easy to get sucked into the things, as, as, as John will record here, the things which shall be. Come, come chapter 4, that's going to be what really the rest of the book kind of entails is here's the things which shall be, the things which are going to happen. And when we come to Revelation, and no doubt for many of you, your desire to study this book is rooted in much of that to understand what's going to happen, what's coming. And so it's easy for us to get kind of sucked into that and to the prophecy and to speculate and consider all of those things. But we have to ask ourselves really, what is this book? What, what is it? The answer is in the title, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, right? So we've got to be careful that we don't get so focused on speculation over things that will be. This is about a revealing of Jesus, and so as we study this book, and especially, this is why I want us to take our time on the letters, because specifically here in these letters, we are reading the words of Jesus and what he has to say about his church. It's his it's his church. It, and, and who is that church? It's us. It's us. Right? This is just a building. We, who, who have entered into it, we are the church and we are his. And, and so if we belong to him, if he's the bridegroom and we are the bride, do we not want to know his heart for us? What he desires of his church what he has to say about his church. And so we're gaining more insight. As we look at these letters, we're gaining more insight into his heart. And so we can say then that there is a very practical element for us within these seven churches and these seven letters. And we can see also 
in the various issues that come up within each of these letters, we can see ways in which I think the enemy still attacks us. Tactics of the enemy. The enemy has no, no new tactics. Satan doesn't have any new ideas. Okay? He doesn't have any, any, any new ways of coming at believers. It's the same old tactics over and over and over again. And so as we look at church history, and especially as we look at these churches, tonight this church is a little bit different in terms of uh, the problem that they're facing. Uh, but, but we can see within this the, the, the ways in which or the things that the enemy can do to disrupt the church and to impact the church and affect the church and hurt the church. And so uh, we gain just a whole lot of insight as we look to these. And, and so whether that's that we become distracted like Ephesus and we leave our first love, and, and we need to be reminded, called back to your, your first love, as we've considered uh, in, our last, in our last study here in Revelation as we looked at Ephesus, or as we'll see tonight, the difficulty of, of persecution, and within that, the temptation to compromise and the faithfulness that the Lord desires of His people. And so there, there's relevance for us today. And, and I'll freely tell you this, that as we look at this second church here tonight, the church in Smyrna, the persecuted church, that this is not an easy letter to consider. Okay? As much as I would love to, and I know it's nice to have a little bit of, what's the, it's a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down, right? And so a little bit of humor and things can kind of help us to be like, okay, we can, this is a, there's, there's, this isn't going to be a feel-good message, okay? I'll do my best to bring it back to the thing that makes us all feel great, and that's Jesus and that he's on the throne, right? And that takes care of it all when it's all said and done. But as we, if you're like me, you, deal, you dive into this letter and you find yourself just going, oh man, like Lord, it's just convicting. And, and, and I suspect some of you, you've studied it, you know, and if you've given less attention to it, you'll, you'll see. And, and so if we really consider it, especially in our circumstances, this is the big thing. And so let me, let me offer some clarification. There are people in the world today who can read this letter and they read this letter and they find nothing but encouragement because they know that on any given day their life may be taken from them because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And so they read this letter and they go, praise God, thank you. But people like us generally who are living in the conditions that we are living in which are fantastic relative to the majority throughout the world, we read this and we go, man, I just feel bad. I feel convicted, right? And so just be aware of that as we delve into that here tonight. And so <clears throat> John begins here is the way, and he's being instructed in verse 8, writing, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right if you would just agree with me in prayer once more lord this is your word this is a letter to your church to a specific church but to your church to us here tonight and as i've already stated lord we know that this is a this is a tough one but lord we know that you are a god who who loves us who's gracious who's merciful lord you desire faithfulness from us lord here tonight we we don't it's, it's not your desire, we know, based off of your word, it's not your heart that we leave feeling condemned. That's not from you. But conviction, perhaps, yes, Lord. And so I pray, Lord, deal with our hearts however you need to here tonight as we consider 
this word, this letter, knowing, Lord, that there are some, even, even in this moment, Lord, throughout this world who are facing similar persecution. And your word compels us, as we read in Hebrews, that we would remember, or those who are in prison, if, as if we were in prison with them, those who are in chains, as if we were in chains with them. And so, Lord, at the very least here tonight, give us a heart for your persecuted church. Perhaps even more than that, Lord, convict us in the areas where, where we need to be more faithful and, and, and ready, Lord, to, to stand for, for truth, to stand against, Lord, the attacks of the enemy. And so, Lord, do a necessary work in our hearts here tonight, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So again here, as we, as we read the beginning of this letter, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, remember each letter contains the same elements, uh, who it's written to, both the individual and the location. Every letter is going to have that. A description of the Lord. There will be a different description of the Lord in every letter. And so we see, we'll see that here. There's a commendation. That is, uh, here's what you're doing well. And then in all but two of the letters, there is a condemnation. Here's what you're doing wrong, if you will. Um, an exhortation then, a challenge, as well as a promise. I hear in verse 8, once again, written to the angel that is the messenger or the leader uh, or the pastor of the church. That's what I believe is that it's being written to the leader of the church to be shared with the fellowship as a whole, with the people, in this case, in the city of Smyrna. Now we're going to do a little background here. Smyrna is, it's only one, uh, excuse me, it's the only one of the seven churches written to that is still around today. Okay? So this is the only one. All the other ones are gone. You can go, you can find ruins of them, but Smyrna, this is a city that is still there today, and there are still believers there in that city. Smyrna is the modern-day city of Izmir in Turkey. Today it has a population of over 4 million, and it is about 35 to 40 miles north of Ephesus. It sits on the northern... Uh, uh, area there of Turkey on the coast of the Aegean Sea. It was founded by the Greeks. It was taken over by the Romans. It was at one point entirely destroyed and then rebuilt as a leading modern city. You've probably heard of Alexander the Great. He saw fit to invest great resources into this particular city to make it truly a modern city. And so it was a city that had a lot of planning, the streets, the infrastructure. Uh, it was a pretty incredible city in its day and, and even quite impressive still today. Being there on the coast, similar to Ephesus, it served as a port. And so it made it a bustling city. Uh, there was commerce that happened there. Uh, but of course, similar to many of them, uh, significant pagan worship as well. Now, Smyrna is one of two of the seven churches that receives no word of condemnation. They are commended, they are encouraged, but that's it. There's no, for Smyrna, there is no mention of, but I have this against you. There's, there's nothing that they've done wrong, and so this should certainly stand out as a church to us to pay attention to, to say, wow, they're doing things right. Okay. What we, what we will see is that they are commended for their poverty, for their suffering, for their faithfulness. So hopefully you see already why it's kind of a tough letter, right? Those are things that I don't necessarily want to be commended for. Faithfulness, yes, sign me up. Poverty and suffering, I mean, you know, I'll pass if we can, right? 
This is the persecuted church. This is during a time that followed the apostolic age when affronts against the church erupted, largely due to the role of the Caesars and the demands for them to be worshipped as God. So this is what really uh, brought about a, a good bit of persecution. Now certainly Nero was notorious for his persecution, and, and, and in part that was because um, he just hated them. Uh, he, just, he just hated the Christians, and he also saw them, though some debate this, as a, as a great scapegoat for some of his political plots. Um, but as, as worship of Caesar kind of came about, it of course put Christians in a very difficult place, and uh, this gave way to much persecution. Now Smyrna, as I mentioned, much like Ephesus, was a powerful city. It was wealthy, prominent. There was great pride in Smyrna. Um, Smyrna served as a hub for worship of pagan gods. Uh, one street in particular, this is kind of the main street, they called it the Golden Street, contained many incredible temples. I mean, these were, these were really impressive structures. They had temples to Cybele, uh, Apollo, Asclepius, Aphrodite. There was a temple there to Zeus that kind of sat against the backdrop of the mountains. But the worship of these pagan gods was beginning to die out, and Smyrna saw an opportunity to align themselves with Rome and to show a strong allegiance through worship of the Roman emperor. Now, early on, some of the earliest Caesars never really considered formal worship of themselves. It wasn't something that they sought. They didn't set themselves up to be gods and to be worshipped that way. It was really about conquest for them. It was about national pride more than it was subjugation and worship. But as the Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome, really progressed, even though this, this idea of Pax Romana was was a, uh, a brutal uh, uh, force to be reckoned with as they took over the then-known world, there was a lot of benefits that then came from that. So even though they did bring people under subjugation, as Roman rule kind of progressed throughout the then-known world, you began to see truly peace in many areas. Now, some people were scared for their lives, and so that's why they didn't break the law, but they didn't break the law nonetheless. Piracy out on the Aegean Sea began to cease, and so now you could have trade more easily. Uh, the Roman road system uh, was, was well lit and had security, and so you could begin to travel from place to place and, and not fear for your life. And so um, even though there was a little bit of, uh, of a price to pay for Smyrna especially, they said, if we align ourselves with Rome, if we really begin to establish a sense of Roman pride, we're going to be a prosperous city. And so that's what they did. In fact, in, in 196 BC, Smyrna had built the first temple to the Dea Roma, or the goddess of Rome. And this was the spiritual symbol of the Roman Empire. And, and from that point, here, because a lot of that began in Smyrna, it didn't take long to begin worshiping other Caesars. Even though it wasn't the intention of the early Caesars, how long can someone go in power and people really professing their allegiance to them and wanting to worship them before they stop kind of going, no, 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 and, and just saying, yes, okay, bring it on. Worship me, right? And, and this really gave rise under Domitian uh, around this time and that's when worship of the Caesars became compulsory. It went from sort of this voluntary thing, like whatever, if that floats your boat, to you must worship Caesar. And uh, 
And so it doesn't, it doesn't take long for man to crave worship, right? We see this even, I mean, you could, you could look at many aspects of the establishing of the United States of America and see the progression through our political system. Um, my favorite president, you know, a lot of people get asked that question, my favorite president, George Washington. And you can debate that. Some of you probably do. Some of you history buffs, you're like, oh, no, 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 he's not the right one. Why do I like George Washington? Because he was the most fantastic guy ever? No, he did a lot of things wrong, all right? And had had uh, views on things that weren't right. But here's the deal. Of all the presidents, he was the only one who didn't want to be the president. Okay? That tells me something. He was the only one who said, look, we just rid ourselves of a king. I'm not trying to be another one. He's quoted as saying, I had, I'd rather be on my farm than be emperor of the world. He had a different vision. But nevertheless, he accepted the call. The people demanded it. He stepped into the role, and it didn't take long didn't take a progression of many presidents to get to a place where all of a sudden, if not the president himself, the politics surrounding him and the entire system began to be worshipped. Right? And so we see this pattern throughout history. It's a difficult one to escape. And so worship was voluntary for a time, but under Domitian it began to be required, and citizens were required to burn incense to Domitian each year and to call him Lord. They were to come to the temple, to burn incense unto him, to bow their knee, and declare Caesar is Lord. And that was it. Beyond this, no one really cared who you worshipped. You could come, you could perform that act, and then you could go on and worship anything else that you wanted to worship. As long as you made your declaration to Caesar. You checked in at the temple, you burnt your incense, and you moved on. But here's what would happen in that case. When you did that, as it was required, you would check in, they would take note, and you would receive a certificate, a permit of sorts, that then allowed you to basically go about and do the rest of your life. That permit allowed you to get a job and work. That permit allowed you to basically buy and sell. And so it was very important that you earned that certificate through your declaration of Caesar as Lord so that you could go about the rest of your life and do the things that you needed to do. Now the name Smyrna, and there's a, there's a lot really to be considered here that I don't think we can jump over. Smyrna, you want to know what it can be translated as, what it means? I don't know what that word Smyrna means. Myrrh, exactly. You know what myrrh is? Embalming fluid. Yep. What was Jesus given? Myrrh. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Right? Had a bitter taste, but a fragrant aroma when it was crushed and pressed. We see mention of myrrh often throughout the Word of God. Oftentimes it's mixed with wine. We do know of an example when it was mixed with wine and given to Jesus while he was hanging on the cross. Um, Myrrh is used, as was mentioned, in the embalming process of a body. It's the holy anointing oil that's used in tabernacle worship. Myrrh is used as a perfume that's used by the bridegroom. In the Song of Solomon we see this, as well as in Psalm uh, 45. Uh, Myrrh is mentioned 17 times in 16 different verses throughout the Word of God. And this has become sort of synonymous with the fragrance of Christ as the bridegroom of the church. 
Um, myrrh, as I mentioned, is, is used in various items and it has to be crushed. There's this crushing process that releases the fragrance. And so it's fitting that this church is the persecuted church, the church that experiences incredible pressure, a pressing down on them, um, that this is the church of myrrh. And so this particular church stands amongst many as one of the greatest accounts of persecution ever seen within the church. But, as I've mentioned already tonight, it's the only one that's still around. What does that tell you? It grew. It thrived. There was a sweet-smelling aroma of the saints who were martyred. It fueled a boldness in the lives of these believers. And uh, it's to be a sweet-smelling aroma to Christ, the bridegroom. And so, again, John writes, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These, these things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. So here now we see the description of the Lord Jesus in this particular letter. It's, again, different in each of the letters. And here we see that there are two descriptions that are given for Jesus. The first, of course, is that He is the first and last. He's the beginning and the end. This is really a description of God. This is a way of saying, I am God. I am in control. I am over all things. There's nothing before me. There's nothing after me. I'm the beginning and the end. But also here, the second description, I'm the one who was dead and came to life. That is, I'm the one who defeated death. To these believers who were already facing persecution, and they knew that the persecution, especially based off of this letter, but they they knew, they could tell, that it was about to get worse, it wasn't going to lessen, they were encouraged by receiving a letter from a Savior who identifies with them. And it gives them hope. It gave them hope. The language here really speaks of one who subjected himself to death willingly, but is living still. What encouragement to those who are anticipating their soon death. That there is a Savior God of the universe who is saying, look, I was dead. I willingly gave myself to it, but I'm alive. Is that not encouraging? Smyrna would see, and it would see absolutely terrible persecution under Domitian because of this mandate to worship Caesar. And they couldn't do it. Look, it, it, for many, no doubt, it, it, it seemed like just a simple process. Just go in there, bend the knee, say, Caesar's Lord, get your certificate, move on. But for Christians, they knew, no, I can't. There's only one Lord, and that's Jesus. To do anything other would be idolatry, would be to to put before themselves another God. Now, there were some cities that didn't enforce this as much, but not not in Smyrna. Because of their pride in being the amazing city that they saw themselves to be, they, they wanted to maintain a right relationship with Rome. And so they were very strict on this. And so it was an incredibly dangerous place to be a Christian unless you were willing to compromise and bow the knee to Caesar. And and, and again, no doubt many were encouraged to do so. 
people, people probably saying to them, come on, what's the big deal? You don't even have to, you don't even have to mean it. Just go in there and, and cross your fingers behind your back, right? Just say it. God knows your heart, right? And these are the temptations, these are the temptations in, in so many different areas of life for a Christian, honestly, to go, man, it, what, what does it matter? It's just, it's just this one little thing, right? But, but God calls us not to compromise. He calls us to faithfulness. The, the, you know the, the verse, you know the verse that, that led me, that the Lord used to bring me to salvation? You might guess it was Romans 12, 1 and 2, right? It came right after that. It was kind of part of the same study. Obedience is better than sacrifice. It jumped off the pages of Scripture like a two-by-four to my face. I mean, I mean it just did. I, I, here I was. You know, I had spent my life pretending to be something that I was not. And here I was in a place of just great difficulty, um, wondering what in the world happened to my life and it really, in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't that bad at the moment. But for me, this young kid who was in his first year of college, I was just like, eh, man, I am not, we're not in Kansas anymore, right? I mean, it was just like, what, what is going on? And so I'm like, I, I got to really start to read this, read this thing. I mean, the Lord was drawing me. And so I, I'm looking for hope. I'm looking for peace. I'm looking for comfort. And, and I just begin to read his word and, and, Man, I come across that passage and it just, just hits me. Obedience, not sacrifice. And, and in that moment, even that's, in some respects, that's really a misapplication of the passage. It really had to do with animal sacrifice. But, but for me, I didn't, all, all I saw was my entire life, I've just been, I've just been sacrificing. I've just been uh, uh, compromising. But what he desires is obedience, faithfulness. We're hit with these temptations all the time. But yet, here we are when, when we're facing a difficult circumstance and the enemy uses different tactics to seek to, to tempt us, to, to compromise, to, to just sort of uh, finagle, to, to, miss and, to twist Scripture, and uh, to do anything we can to sort of get around what is clearly in the Word of God that we just need to, we just need to deal with and say, look, it's in the Word, it's clear. I, I, I've got I've to pay attention to this. I've got I've to live my life in accordance with this. Well, the, the great encouragement that comes to us when we're in such circumstances, or maybe when we're in a situation where we're thinking, how can I get through this? Well, what, what, what type of encouragement do we need? That He is God. That He is in control. That He has overcome. In verse 9, I know your works, tribulation, poverty, right? That, 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 there, that it becomes increasingly evident to us that we serve a God who knows, who cares, who is there. I mean, these are the things that are intended to help us to, 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 to gather the strength that we need to endure some of the difficult circumstances in life. He says he knows. He says, I know. I know your works. I know what you're going through. He knows what they've been dealing with. He knows what they've been doing. Their works, the fruit of their salvation, their actions, how they've been living. He says, I know. I see it. 
The tribulation. What it is that they've been enduring. This word tribulation is the word, it's the Greek word flipsis. It means extreme pressure. God, you're saying, I know the pressure that you are under. There was a particular form of torture. They would use all kinds of different torture during this time. I mean, they just had, they had a whole list. And, and oftentimes when the torture and, and, and the, the ultimate um, uh, murder of these, of these Christians would happen, especially within the, the Colosseum, it would be the crowd that would chant for the different things that they wanted to see happen to them. One of the particular uh, forms of torture that really um, kind of gave meaning to this, this word uh, would be that they would, they would take a massive stone and they would lay the person on a, on a board, on a rack, and they would place the stone on their chest. And with every exhale, the stone would push further down upon them. And because of its weight, they would be unable to inhale and fill their lungs. And so in a matter of time, they would suffocate under the pressure that was placed upon them. And crowds would cheer as they watched it happen. And here Jesus, this is Jesus speaking, He says, I know. And He knows not just because He is an all-knowing, that He, he is omniscient and He is omnipresent, but how else does He know? Because He was in every way tempted as we are. And He experienced these things. Think of, think of Jesus in in, uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. What's Gethsemane mean? Anybody know? It means the pressing place. What, would, what did they harvest there in the garden? Olives. How did they get the olive oil out of the olives? They pressed them. Extreme pressure was necessary to crush the olive, to crush the pit such that the oil could come out of it. Then Jesus with them came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. And he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, oh my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again a second time he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And so he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. And then he came to his disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. I mean, there it was, it was time and time and time again he went and he, and he bowed down before the Lord. And we know based off the other gospel accounts that so great was the pressure upon him that he began to sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. Such pressure was upon him in that place of pressure, the very place where, where the olives were crushed was, the, was that, that time when, when our Savior Jesus was being crushed at the consideration of what he was about to endure and, and, and less so the pain of the crucifixion but more so the separation he would experience from his Father because of sin which he had never known. And I can't help but think here as he took Peter, James, and John with him. And now here it's John. And it's John who's looking at the glorified risen Lord Jesus. 
and he's writing down everything that Jesus has to say, and here he's writing down the words of his Savior who says, I know, I know. I'm of the opinion that, that John could barely make it through this process without just breaking down and weeping himself. And he says, I know your works, I know how you're living, I know, I know your actions, and I know the pressure that you're under, and the poverty. Now there's two words in the Greek for poverty. There's one word that, that uh, is sort of a, a lesser poverty. It's just sort of, hey, you're not, you're not, you're, certain, you're, low cl- you're, you're in the low economic class, and, but yet you have, you have enough. You, you've got some food on the table, you, you've got some resources to get you by, but, but you don't have plenty. And then there's another word for poverty, and this is the word that's used here, and this is the way the Greek words work. We have a lot of different you know, options that express different things. And, and so this word here in the Greek really it speaks of an abject poverty. They have nothing. They've got nothing. They don't have two nickels to rub together. They have nothing. Why do they have nothing? Because they won't bow their knee to Caesar and so they can't get the certificate and they can't work. And even if they come across money, they don't have that certificate and so their money's no good. Nobody's going to take it. They have nothing. They're excluded from what was called the guild. It means they come back without their certificate, they get fired from their jobs, turned away from every opportunity. They are outcasts in every sense. And most of us, most of us, we don't know anything of this type of living. Yet what does Jesus say? I know your works, tribulation, the pressure. I know that you have nothing materially, but you are rich. You are rich. Now to some, I think that that feels like maybe just salt on a wound. Rich. I mean, did do, do, do they feel that way? Do you think they felt that way? Was it truly an encouragement? How does it feel sometimes when somebody says to you regarding your circumstances that are maybe some of the most difficult circumstances that you've ever faced, but, but they say, look, it's okay, you're blessed. What do you want to say? Shut up. <laughs> right? It's just me. <laughs> you're blessed. God's good. Don't you go dragging the Bible into it. Not right now. Right? I mean, that in our flesh, if we're honest, it's got to be the way we, sometimes we, we feel. But this is Jesus writing to them. This is the one who knows. This is the one who, who knows. And he says, look, I understand. And I, I, and I get it. I see that you have nothing. And I've experienced this as well. I've experienced the pressure. I've experienced the poverty. I'm telling you, you're rich. Here's the big question for us. It was the same question for them. It's the exact same one for us. Do we believe that? Do we believe that? Do we trust that? Guys, that is a huge question in this particular context. Do you believe that? So much of what we have within the Word of God are these things that that can seem so far off, so out of touch with the reality that we're seemingly facing. And we as Christians, we're called to a place where we have to say, I'm going to trust this. I'm going to believe this. And the problem is, and this isn't necessarily an issue of salvation, the problem is most of the time, 
whether we state it expressly or it's just subconsciously, we say, no, I don't believe that. And so I'm going to pursue all these other things because I get it, God, but, but you don't understand. This is what's really necessary for me right now. Am I right? But these particular people, they believed it. They said, I trust you. I trust God that what you have is better. And we know it because they stayed. They stayed. D- despite all of the, they could Walk 40 miles south, for crying out loud. Just go south. It's a little bit better in Ephesus. That's my first thought. The first time I read this letter, I said, get the heck out of there. Super Christian, right? Just leave. Man, as an assistant pastor, early on, I think I was still the youth pastor. Youth pastors. <laughs> See, I can say that, right? I can say, because I was one. I can say youth pastors. And we were going through a crisis at, at the church, and this was at a Calvary up in uh, Michigan. And man, it was just a tough time. And I won't get into all the details of all the different things that were happening, but I can tell you as a young guy and as a youth pastor, I'm watching all this stuff. And I'm like, this is ministry? I don't know that I want to do this. Right? Like, I mean, just backstabbing and, and gossip and the rumor mill and accusations and, and, and stuff just getting blown out of proportion. And, 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 and one, I'm not going to say who it is, but somebody got hit. I mean, one night somebody came in and they decked somebody, a leader in the church. They did not receive the truth <laughs> that, that was being shared with them. And I'm watching all this stuff go down. I'm like, <laughs> what is this? And so here, but I'm getting, the, I'm getting the experience of watching elders and listening and supporting my pastor who I love. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm probably supposed to like really, you know, press on, brother, you know? And he looks at me this night when things had really just kind of come to a head, and I said, bro, I think you should quit. <laughs> I'm like, I'm, there doesn't seem to be any option at this point, and I'll go, I'll go with you. <laughs> he still rem- he's, he remembers that clearly, you know? And I was young, and I was just like, this, is, this isn't cool. And <laughs> And you read this, and you're like, what in the world? But I didn't have a sense at that point. I mean, the, so much work that the Lord still had to do in my heart, and even still today, I haven't arrived. But for the Lord to show me, for Him to show us what it means to be faithful and to trust Him and to trust His Word and to truly believe that what He has is better and, and that, yes, He is working all things together for good for those who love Him and, and to know that He's a sovereign God and to be able to just say, okay, whatever this is, Lord, I'm going to trust that it's Your grace in my life and I want it. This is hard. But these, these people were living for the eternal they were living for that which does not perish, what neither rust nor moth destroy. And contrast that with Laodicea and the church age in which I think we live today. This lukewarm church. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. The disciples there on the steps with the beggar and they say to him, silver and gold I do not have. What I do have, I give to you. Guys, what God has for us is so far beyond this. 
And I think sometimes, and especially because we're here, because we're in this country, which I love, and we are blessed, and no matter what happens in this country, even though some things really need to change, it, it, it pales in comparison to what's going on throughout the rest of the world. We are blessed, but oh man, are we in a difficult spot to be able to truly live some of these things out because of the abundance and the decadence. And we need to ask ourselves, we need to really, like, do I trust your word? Do I trust what you say in your word? And then am I living my life in light of this truth? Because if you truly believe it, you do it. That's just what it is. You just do it. And he says again, and I know, I know. Jesus, you're over and over again. He's saying, I know. And guys, I I think this this should truly be an encouragement to us. And I know sometimes it's hard because interaction with with Christ in this in-between time seems so at times just kind of far off that to know here that he says he knows and he understands doesn't necessarily always make everything in that moment feel better, but it, it is the truth. And he is truly the only one who knows. And I think, I think far too often we're looking at the horizontal to find somebody who knows in order to make us feel better. And sometimes they're there and praise God for the body of Christ and how we work in that way and how he, he comforts us in our own affliction that we can comfort others with the comfort with which we've received, right? But then sometimes it's just not. Sometimes we're in a spot where we, we're, there's nobody. There's no, you don't have somebody on this level. What you've got is Jesus, and he knows. I often tell the story, Ashley knows it well, that when, when James, our middle child, was in the hospital, and I mean, and this is at the point, I mean, this was just, it was rough, and some of you know the story. Um, and you know, so at this point, we're, I don't know how many weeks in we are, but, but what I do know is at this point, the doctors have given up hope. I mean, what, you, what some of you don't know about James, and he hates it when we talk about this, he calls it reruns. Reruns, leftovers. Leftovers, thank you. Yeah, Dad, stop reheating the leftovers. And what do we say? And Ashley, with tears in her eyes, James, <laughs> we promised God that we would tell people about what he did. So suck it up, buddy. <laughs> but what you guys don't know about that kid who just kind of bebops through here occasionally and is that doctors said, he is going to die. He's going to die. We'll keep him comfortable. Begin to say your goodbyes and just enjoy the rest of the time that you have with him. And well-intentioned people, people who loved us, would come and, and they would try to encourage. But sometimes it just didn't work. And no fault to theirs. They, they loved us. But it just didn't. It didn't help. But occasionally there would be certain people Because of their experiences, they knew. And all they needed to say was, I know. And that was it. That's all you needed to feel a certain sense of comfort. And what I'm telling you tonight is, we have a Savior who knows. He knows. And we need to run to Him more. And and I say this to myself. So often I want to run to other things. But He's the only one that I should truly be running to. And it's the stuff we sing about. We sing about it. 
We declare it in song, but then in practice, we so often just run to other things. And I think, so, I think a big part of the reason why we run to other things is because we have other things that have so often served to comfort or to satisfy, but just momentarily. And, and by golly, I, I do, I, I love this country. I really do. I'm we're blessed. But this is where I find myself oftentimes lately as, as we're in this sort of unique, we're in a weird time. And we're, in this, and we're in this interesting time too where the church is getting sucked into really trying to put more of its focus and its attention and its energy on trying to preserve a republic. And, and, and for good reason in terms of, well gosh, if, there, if Jesus tarries in his return and more generations are going to live through this, well gosh, yes, I want this country to be a wonderful place for our kids. Yes, um, don't get me wrong, but I find myself regularly struggling with the tension there between trying to preserve something that's on the horizontal versus just saying, Lord, you do whatever you need to do to cause your people to run to you. Because I know that there's only one church still around today, and it's the one that experienced persecution. It's the one that, that ran to you and, and, and said, you're enough. You're enough, Lord. And whatever you have for me, I trust you, and I want it. And so, Lord, lead me wherever you want me to go. Tell me wherever you want me to go. Point me wherever it is you want me to go. Lord, I'm going. I'll go. I don't care what the cost is. And I find myself saying, God, I want that. But then the part of me is like, no, I don't want that at all. That's hard. But he says, I know. And here he says, I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. What's he saying? Why did John write this here? Well, here's the thing. This, this was such, the, the, you have, we have to understand the betrayal that they were experiencing. There were Jews in this area, there were Jewish people in this area, and the Jews were exempted from the mandate to worship Caesar because they were recognized as an official religion. So they didn't have to go through the process. And so they didn't need to worship Caesar, but rather than looking upon the Christians and saying, oh my, let's do something to help, they said, these are our enemies. And so we're going to go ahead and take the 10% reward that comes from their possessions and we're going to turn them in for not worshiping Caesar. And we're going to cheer along with the rest of them while they die at the stake. And so you want to know what Jesus has to say about that? He says, they're not who they say they are. They're a synagogue of Satan. And what, what, what we see in Scripture then is that persecution is always from Satan. And so why would he do it? Why would, per, if, why would persecution come? If it's always from the enemy, why would it come? To stop that which God desires to do. If God says he can work all things, not some things, not a few things, if he can work all things together for good to those who love him, that he can use every circumstance to conform you into his image and prepare you for glory. And Satan wants to stop that, right? So for us, when we see it then, even though our natural response too is to say, make it stop, make it stop, make the suffering end. What we're called to here, the example of these believers is to say, Lord, if that's what you have for me, give me the strength for it. Now, that's a scary thing too, right? Because as you're sitting here, and this was the same thing. Listen, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a different thing, but it, but it paints a similar picture. There were so many people during the time in which James was in the hospital that were constantly saying to us, I don't know how you guys are doing this. 
I don't know how you're getting through this time. And we're not unique here. I know that there's others who are sitting here tonight and you've been through very difficult circumstances. And maybe something similar was said, like, how, how are you doing this? How are you getting through this? How are you keeping your sanity? And in the time, it was just sort of like, uh, I don't know. Right? It was just, I mean, there were days when we were just sort of numb. But yet, like, yes, Lord, you're just day after day. Because he equips you for it. He gives you the strength for it. And so as you sit here tonight and you think, and, and, and listen, it, shouldn't, it ought not be worry because Scripture is clear on, 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 what, on how we should not worry. But we can sit here tonight and we could think, Lord, is there persecution coming in our country? Well, there is. It's already begun. How great it will get, we don't know. But we could sit here and we could think, oh, no. What's going to happen? What am I going to do? And maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not strong enough. Maybe I, maybe I can't do this. Look, he equips you for it when you need it. Corey Ten Boom, Christian family, they were very uh, influential during the time of the Holocaust in, in sparing Jews from the atrocities of the concentration camp. And Corey Ten Boom ended up in one of the concentration camps, a particular camp where 55,000 women were murdered in that particular camp, but not her. And she said to her dad, as the persecution was increasing, certainly against the Jews, but now also the Christians, she said to her dad, I don't know that I can, I can withstand. I don't know that I'm going to be able to do this. And her dad looked at her, and I, and I paraphrased, but he said, when you go on a journey and you take the train, when do I give you the money? And she said, well, just before I go. And he says, and so God will give you exactly what you need just before you go. And she hung on to that for hope. And so what does Jesus say? As he says he knows, does he say, and I'm going to stop this suffering for you? In verse 10, he says to them in this letter, as Jesus knows, there's more coming. When this letter was delivered, it had just begun. He didn't say, Here's the way to avoid it. He said, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And you will, you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Because I can't help but say it here in this moment. Anybody who preaches a prosperity gospel is preaching a message straight from the pit of hell. Please know that. Here we see our Lord and Savior say, look, you're going to die. You're going to go through some really hard things. Be faithful. You're going to get a crown. And what does that tell us? That what he has for us is so much better and here's the amazing thing for us tonight. Here's some encouragement for you. Here's a, let's lighten it up a little bit. There's some pretty good things going on in this life, right? Amen? Am I right? There's some pretty good things happening in this life. There's a lot of things I really enjoy in this life. And, and so I don't need to look at those things and go, oh, man, I'm going to let that go. No, I can look at those things and go, well, what he has for me is going to be pretty good. It's going to be pretty awesome. Because I've had some moments where I'm just like, this kind of feels like heaven right now, Lord. And what I know based off of a study of His Word is that it doesn't even come close. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard. I don't even have a clue what He's got in store. And so we have wonderful things to look forward to and to hope in, but He says, look, it's going to be hard. And so here He says, He says, do not fear. And I'm, I'm going to start to wrap up. <laughs> he says, literally, stop being afraid. This is how this is rightly translated. Stop being afraid. Stop fearing what is about to happen. And if they had a right to be afraid, if anybody you could say had a right to be afraid, they had a right. And, he go, and then he goes on in the letter. What a, what a letter. 
Yeah, some of you are about to get thrown into prison. The devil's going to do. Peter, Satan has sought you <laughs> to sift you as wheat. Oh, boy. I think i got to change my robe. It's going to be hard. But be faithful. I will give you the crown of life. Now, tribulation for 10 days, what does that mean? A lot of theories. Can't dive into all of them tonight. Some people say, well, this is the 10 ages of persecution that you saw in the Roman Empire. That could be true. The problem is, when this letter was delivered, there's already a couple of them that are done. So that kind of throws things off a little bit. Again, in Scripture, we see sometimes a day is a day. Sometimes a day is a year or a longer period of time. Here's what we need to know from this. Here's what's important. It's going to end. What he's saying to them is, it's not forever. This is not forever. This momentary light affliction. He says, you'll get a crown. You'll get a crown. So you're going to win. You'll be victorious. Verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Look, there's a saying that says, born once, die twice. You're born naturally of your mother's womb, and that's it. You'll die physically, you'll die spiritually. Born twice, die once. Born naturally, born again, die once. And by golly, if the rapture comes, we can just bypass that. Indulge me for two minutes. Anybody know who the pastor of this church was? Not this one. This one? Smyrna? At this time? Anybody ever heard the name of Polycarp? Polycarp, I'm going to read from extra biblical text. Polycarp returned from Rome. Great persecution came upon the Christians of Smyrna. His congregation urged him to leave the city until the threat blew over. Believing that God wanted him to be around a few more years, Polycarp left the city and hid out on a farm belonging to some Christian friends. One day on the farm, as he prayed in his room, Polycarp had a vision of his pillow engulfed in flames. He knew what God was saying to him and calmly told his companions, I see now that I must be burnt at the stake. Meanwhile, the chief of police in this area issued a warrant for his arrest. They seized one of Polycarp's servants and tortured him until he told them where his master was. Towards evening, the police chief and a band of soldiers came to the old farmhouse. When the soldiers found him, they were embarrassed to see that they had come to arrest such an old, frail man. But they reluctantly put him on a donkey and walked him back to the city of Smyrna. What this particular account doesn't include is that when they got there, he served them a meal. On the way to the city, the police chief and other government officials tried to persuade Polycarp to offer a pinch of incense before a statue of Caesar and simply say, Caesar is Lord. It's all he had to do, and he would be off the hook. They pleaded with him to do it and escape the dreadful penalties. At first, Polycarp was silent, but then he calmly gave them his firm answer, no. The police chief was now angry. Annoyed with the old man, he pushed him out of his carriage and onto the hard ground. Polycarp, bruised but resolute, got up and walked the rest of the way to the arena. The horrid games at the arena had already begun in earnest. A large bloodthirsty mob had gathered to see Christians tortured and killed. One Christian named Quintus had boldly proclaimed himself a follower of Jesus and said he was willing to be martyred. But when he saw the vicious animals in the arena, he lost courage and agreed to burn that pinch of incense to Caesar as Lord. But another young man named Germanicus didn't back down. He marched out and faced the lions and died an agonizing death for his Lord Jesus Christ. Ten other Christians gave their lives that day, but the mob was unsatisfied. They cried out, Away with the atheists who did not worship our gods. To them, Christians were atheists because they did not recognize the traditional gods of Rome and Greece. Finally, the crowd started chanting, Bring out Polycarp. When Polycarp brought his tired body into the arena, he and the other Christians heard a voice from heaven. It said, Be, be strong, Polycarp. Play the man. 
As he stood before the proconsul, they tried one more time to get him to renounce Jesus. The proconsul told Polycarp to agree with the crowd and shout out, Away with the atheists! Polycarp looked sternly at the bloodthirsty mob, waved his hand towards them, and said, Away with those atheists! The proconsul persisted, Take the oath and revile Christ, and I'll set you free. And Polycarp answered, For eighty-six years I've served Jesus. How dare I now revile my king? The proconsul finally gave up and announced to the crowd the crime of the accused. Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian. The crowd shouted, let the lions loose, but the animals had already been put away. The crowd then demanded that Polycarp be burnt. The old man remembered the dream about the burning pillow and took courage in God. He said to his executioners, it is well. I fear not the fire that burns for a season and after a while is quenched. Why do you delay? Come to your will. They arranged a great pile of wood and set up a pole in the middle. As they tied Polycarp to the pole, he prayed, I thank you that you have graciously thought me worthy of this day and of this hour that I may receive a portion in the number of the martyrs in the cup of your Christ. After he prayed and gave thanks to God, they set the wood ablaze. A great wall of flame shot up to the sky, but it never touched Polycarp. God had set a hedge of protection between him and the fire. Seeing that he would not burn, the executioner in a furious rage stabbed the old man with a long spear. Immediately streams of blood gushed from his body and seemed to extinguish the fire. When this happened, witnesses say they saw a dove fly up from the smoke into heaven. The very same moment, a church leader in Rome named Arrhenius said he heard God say to him, Polycarp is dead. God called his servant home. He would receive the letter, encouraging him, be faithful, be faithful until the end. The fact of the matter is, as I mentioned at the beginning in the chronology of the church, the day of the martyrs is definitely not past. All over the world, Christians face persecution, especially as we know in Asia, Eastern Europe, the Muslim world. Many estimates suggest that more Christians have suffered for their faith and have been martyred in the 20th century than in all previous centuries combined. Age is not over. But wherever it happens, the church thrives. Revival right now and throughout history has always been in places where great persecution has swept the land. I know it's heavy, but I can't help but when I read this particular letter to say, Lord, Lord, I'm weak. Lord, call us to more. Do what's necessary, Lord, to prompt a faith within us that even even just has a, a hint of the fire that these people demonstrated. <clears throat> Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together here tonight. And Lord, as a Prayed at the very beginning, Lord, I recognize again what a sobering letter this is. A difficult one, no doubt, Lord, for us to consider. But one that is filled with truth and examples of those who have gone before us. And Lord, once again, we need not, we know, feel condemned as we leave this place here tonight. Because we are where we are. Not that, Lord, condemnation is not from you. But conviction, Lord, to live boldly for you. Lord, to pursue you no matter the cost. To be aware, Lord, of the luxuries available to us that can serve to weaken us and soften us. Lord, strengthen us, cause us to stand firm for the truth. To go wherever it is you call us to go, wherever you send us, Lord, with boldness, confidence in what your Holy Spirit can do. Lord, continue to raise up your church here in this day, in this age. May we live boldly for you, Lord, looking to those who serve as examples for us. Keep us mindful, Lord, of who you are, what you've done, of the fact that you know, Lord, cause us in all things to run to you and not to the things of this world, I pray. We love you and praise you, Lord, and we thank you for our time together here this evening. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure that you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit our website at ccnortheast.org.